Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the historic community of Mandarin, Florida. During this time, Jackson was becoming the tourist destination for the South. And so a lot of folks would come into these steamboats, take the steamboats up from Jacksonville to see Harry Beecher Stowe. We'll talk with Craig Pittman, author of Manatee Insanity, Inside the War Over Florida's Most Endangered Species, and look at how the definition of women's work changed during World War II. I was working at Sears for $16.50 a week. A friend of mine called and she says, if you want to make $44.50 a week at the shipyard, be there this week. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the sound of Mandarin oranges making their way through an antique orange sorter in the historic community of Mandarin. Now part of Jacksonville, the town of Mandarin has been a popular place to live for many centuries. The Tamuqua settlement, called Timagua, was documented by French mapmaker Lanier from nearby Fort Caroline in 1564. When the British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783, an active community of plantations called St. Anthony's was located here. Naturalist William Bartram visited one of these plantations on his travels down the St. John's River. When the Spanish regained control of Florida in 1784, the thriving agricultural community was renamed San Antonio. In 1821, as Florida became a United States territory, the town was called Monroe after the U.S. president. A local orange grower named Calvin Reed suggested the name Mandarin when the town established a U.S. post office in 1830. Throughout the 19th century, citrus was grown very successfully in Mandarin and shipped out on the St. John's River. Andrew Morrow is executive director of the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society. He explains that during the Civil War, the Union steamship Maple Leaf was sunk in the river by Mandarin. The Maple Leaf was um, a really important site. It's actually a National Historic Landmark. It's one of the few maritime national landmarks. And what's unique about it is it's been able to preserve the history of the everyday soldier during the Civil War uh, because of the preservation quality of the St. John's River uh, has been able to preserve paper, leather, wood, um, everything that a soldier would need to live and also a couple of little uh, extra um, uh, conveniences that the soldiers were able to acquire across the, uh, along the way. The story actually begins uh, at the Battle of Lusty and uh, the Confederates uh, destroyed the Union soldiers that were marching towards Tallahassee. And so the Unions made a fast retreat back to Jacksonville. And a call went out, orders went out, to uh, bring soldiers in for uh, reinforcement for an expected assault. Some of these soldiers came from South Carolina, actually a place called uh, Folly Island, South Carolina. And uh, the soldiers had to make a fast march from South Carolina all the way down to Jacksonville. So they had to leave all their heavy baggage so they can make the, the, the march. This baggage was loaded up onto the Maple Leaf and was supposed to meet the soldiers up um, in, in Jacksonville. 
The Maple Leaf arrives in Jacksonville, and before it can unload its baggage, it receives orders to bring on a cavalry unit to go to Palatka, where another, uh, which was also being threatened by, to, to being overrun by the uh, Confederate forces. They get down to Palatka, unload a cavalry unit, took on some Union sympathizers, uh, and also a couple of Confederate prisoners. And it was heading back down the St. John's River um, uh, during the night, which was standard orders. And the, that night, on April 1st, 1864, uh, the Confederates put out a minefield, what we call, um, uh, what they call a Confederate torpedo, what we call a minefield now. Um, and this was the first time it was deployed in Florida, but they were used uh, pretty extensively throughout the uh, campaign area. The Maple Leaf runs into the minefield and sinks pretty quickly. Uh, four people were killed, and uh, the Maple Leaf was a complete loss. The Maple Leaf and its cargo were remarkably preserved under the mud of the St. John's River. We will explore the excavation of the ship on another program, but many interesting artifacts are displayed at the Mandarin Museum. This is a, a Confederate torpedo, uh, which is what was used to uh, sink the Maple Leaf, and it's a keg um, holding about 70 pounds of gunpowder. Uh, on each end, it has these cone-shaped pine uh, cones that give a very football-shaped look. On the top was a detonating cap, and this was where the real technology was. This is what we call a Rains keg torpedo, and it's developed by General Rains. Um, and inside this detonator cap, there were a few little points that when they had shock, they would flame up and cause the main charge to explode. Very crude, but very effective. Um, and the, the Maple Leaf, when it came through, tapped one of the tops here, exploded, and sank within a few minutes. Uh, here we have on exhibit uh, some artifacts from the Maple Leaf. Uh, the Maple Leaf is a very unique archaeological site because it really gives us a life, the personal life of the soldiers. And we have on exhibit here are some very personal items. Uh, one is a bone toothbrush. Um, uh, the the um, glue that held the hairs, the bristles in the toothbrush dissolved and the bristles came out. But other than that, it looks like a toothbrush you'd pick up in the store today. Uh, we also have a domino. Um, soldiers, you know, a lot of their life was not fighting. A lot of it was downtime. And so they had lots of different types of activities to amuse themselves. And games was a very important part of their lives. Uh, also recovered were musical instruments. Um, we have a lot of writing pencils, ink wells, so they did a lot of write letters to home. We also have a picture frame here that would probably would have a, a, um, an amber-type uh, photo. Uh, we don't have the photo, but we do have the frame there. We also have a watch fob here and a silver ring. Writer Harriet Beecher Stowe was the most famous resident of Mandarin. The 1852 novel Uncle Tom's Cabin made Stowe one of the most popular writers of her time. The boat companies, catering to Florida's many tourists, were pleased to have a celebrity in their midst, and they actually paid Stowe to come out on her porch and wave to passengers. Andrew Morrow. She was looking for something for her son, who was wounded during the war, war uh, to do. And she wanted to use, uh, she ended up buying an old Kingsley plantation and uh, wanted to use some of these uh, recently emancipated slaves as labor on a cotton plantation that they were trying to establish in Orange Park. Unfortunately, her son um, had a lot of issues, including alcoholism, and the plantation was a complete and utter failure. Um, but 
Hair Beach, though, when she came down here, she had to get her mail. And she went across the river here. And when we go out there, you'll see what massive distance this is just to get your mail. Um, it's about three miles wide to get her mail here at the Mandarin Post Office. And she fell in love with the community. And she ended up buying um, 30 acres of citrus groves with the intention of making it into a producing citrus area. So she was looking at it as also an income producer. Um, they already had a cottage and she and her husband and her family would come down here in the wintertime and because they were up in Hartford, Connecticut and have brutal winters up there. And so she wanted a nice little retreat down here. And, uh, she was, uh, during this time, Jacksonville was becoming the tourist destination for the South. And so a lot of folks would come into these steamboats, take the steamboats up from Jacksonville to see Harry Beecher Stowe. And she was um, reputed to uh, come out and wave at them, and they'd disembark and walk around Mandarin and take in the sights here. While living in Mandarin, Harriet Beecher Stowe documented her idyllic life in Florida in a series of articles, many of which were published in the book Palmetto Leaves. Although the Stowe family stopped coming to Mandarin in the 1880s, they left an imprint on the community that can be seen today. The Church of Our Savior which is an Episcopal church that started off as a Bible study session in the Stowe's uh, house. And eventually the congregation grew and they established a church here in Mandarin called Church of Our Savior. Um, another place that they made an uh, imprint was the Mandarin Community Club building, which was built in 1872. Uh, here Beecher Stowe was very involved in bringing the Freeman's Bureau here in Mandarin. And the original Bureau building burned down in 1871 and only was around for a year. But it was an important structure for the community. So she helped lead a fundraiser to bring gather up money to build a new one. And that new structure, uh, built in 1872, was used uh, as a church and actually used as the community school up until the 1940s. Uh, and also uh, was is home of the Mandarin Community Club, which is, I think, one of the oldest community clubs in the United States. It was established in 1923. Um, so she, she had a lasting impact here in Mandarin. As we walk through the Mandarin Museum with Andrew Morrow, he points out a display of artifacts from Harriet Beecher Stowe's house. Here we see um, a Harriet Beecher Stowe's chair. And on the uh, display case, if you, uh, we have a picture of the parlor of the Stowe House, and in the back wall, you can see the actual chair sitting. Uh, a lot of our visitors comment and comment how very uh, delicate this chair look, um, and a lot of them talk about how it would probably collapse in today's society. But uh, it, it's a very interesting uh, relic from the Stowe House. The Stowe House, unfortunately, uh, did not survive. It was torn down probably around 1916 by the family, um, and uh, there's various reasons, but one of the theories that was given out uh, by a family member was that the uh, uh, nephew uh, felt that the uh, stoves weren't properly treated here in Mandarin, which I, I don't know where he got from because she always wrote uh, very glowing comments about the people of Mandarin. Uh, this is one of the few relics from the actual house that we have. It's a column of probably about six feet tall, and uh, it has these very unique U-shaped gingerbreads that were carved into it. And this is a column that came from the front porch of the Stowe's house. It was a very uh, unique-looking 
house um, for two features. One's for these very unique columns, but the other was because they actually had an oak tree growing out of the, the, the porch. They built the porch around the oak tree. You can see a picture here with the oak tree springing out and the porch wrapping around the oak tree. Um, the house itself sat on the river, and people, uh, the steamboats would come in here, and Harry Beecher would come out onto the porch, uh, sometimes to pretend like she's riding so folks can say that she they saw Harry Beecher riding on her front porch. Another notable resident of Mandarin in the second half of the 19th century is Major William Webb. His house is located in the same historic park as the Mandarin Museum with an 1875 barn, a winery, and a boardwalk along the St. John's River. Major William Webb was a Union major. He actually was a brevet major uh, during the Civil War. And he came down here with his pension with the intention of buying a citrus. Citrus at this time was a very lucrative commodity, and people were literally making thousands of dollars during this time. Uh, he purchased a run-down uh, uh, 30 acres, and uh, there was a house that was built there. Uh, he had a large fam he has a family uh, that he needed to make some improvements on, so he built a new house. And he also uh, put a shipping dock and also a barn, and they went in, put down all the, the overgrowth, and started cultivating oranges And uh, until the oranges were fruitful bearing, which uh, is, I think, five years or six years. He was also sell, uh, growing uh, carrots, potatoes, tomatoes, um, a couple other regular cash crops. Major Webb's home was later inhabited by the Walter Jones family, who expanded the structure. Farming equipment on the property demonstrates what life was like in this historically significant agricultural community. This is a orange sorter. It was actually found on the property. Uh, it's about eight feet long, and it's designed to grade the different sizes of oranges. They, uh, there will be a big table at this end. Uh, after they're done washing, they be fed into this channel here, and they would roll along until they hit a leaf that disengages the little flipper here and send it into a channel to be whatever size that channel is set for. Andrew Morrow is executive director of the Mandarin Museum and Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, heard exclusively on the best public radio stations in Florida. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, inviting you to visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out how to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more by becoming a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. By 1655, only 90 years after the founding of St. Augustine, the Spanish Franciscan missionaries counted 26,000 native converts to Christianity. The natives lived in 38 mission villages, most of them laid out along a royal road from St. Augustine to Gainesville to Tallahassee. 
The friars did not expropriate the natives' lands or push them back along an ever-advancing European frontier, as happened in English colonies to the north. Instead, the friars lived among their people as Peace Corps volunteers live respectfully within foreign societies today. In the native pueblos, they taught not only the catechism of Christianity, but also European farming, cattle and hog raising, weaving, music, and, in many instances, reading and writing. Here is how the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer sounded in the Tumukua language. Heka itamile numa hibantema bisa milanema. The Voices of Florida from Long Ago. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould recently spoke with Craig Pittman, author of the book Manatee Insanity, Inside the War Over Florida's Most Endangered Species. Long before manatees became an endangered species, they were known as sea cows because of their meat. Craig Pittman, author of the new book Manatee Insanity, says one veteran of the Seminole War described it as better than the best Tennessee beef. The uh, settlers in the Miami area in Coconut Grove liked to make a dish called the gypsy stew. Manatee was one of the favorite ingredients. They were easy to catch, is that right? They could be. They'd string a net across an area where manatees were known to frequent and trap them in there. They had this thing, sort of a bang stick, that they could kill them with. When did perceptions in Florida about the manatees start to change? The first law that was passed to protect them was passed in 1893. A fellow named Frederick Morse, who was a state representative from what became Miami, passed this law through the legislature that said you could only kill manatees for scientific purposes, and even then you had to get a permit from your county commission. And if you didn't, you faced a fine of $500 and six months in jail. The law was loosely enforced. The killing continued, but that was the first sign that people were concerned that manatees might be disappearing. The real revolution in attitudes, though, came in the late 60s and early 70s when a researcher named Woody Hartman came down from Cornell to complete his doctorate by doing an in-depth study of manatees, literally, in that he was the first scientist to actually don a mask and flippers and go swimming with them. Woody's research was partially financed by National Geographic. He then wrote a story about what he found. That led to Jacques Cousteau coming to Crystal River to do a special called Forgotten Mermaids. That was the first time people really took a good long look at manatees and A, understood what they were, and B, were intrigued by them. And as a result, tourists began showing up in Crystal River saying, I want to see the manatees, show me the manatees. Are we talking about the West Indian manatee and is it native to Florida? I didn't think it was. The West Indian manatee is native to Florida. They have found fossils around Blue Spring that date back millions of years. William Bartram, in his travels through Florida in the 1700s, documented seeing manatees around Blue Spring. I wonder why it's known as the West Indian manatee. I think that was the first place that scientists encountered it. Columbus saw manatees and described in his logbook that mermaids were not nearly as attractive as they were supposed to be. Have you found any estimates or illustrations to show how plentiful manatees were at one time? Nobody knows. In fact, one of the reasons that manatees were put on the endangered species list was because nobody knew how many there were. The estimate now is that there are about 5,000 swimming around Florida. That's all? Uh, yes. That's actually more than they found back in the early 2000s. There were about 3,000. How do they track manatees? They can attach uh, radio transmitters to their tail. 
the thing that makes manatees so appealing is that they are an endangered species that you can see. They show up at people's backyard docks. They show up in state parks. They almost look as if they're smiling sometimes. In the book, I describe them as being sort of like hippies. They have a very strong sex drive. They're nonviolent. They actually greet each other with something that looks like a kiss. They're staunch vegetarians. Their only known predator really is man. Manatees went from being sea cows, a food source, to some might say a sacred cow. That's a good comparison. (laughs) They have this peculiar look about them. There are at least two documented instances at Homosassa Springs State Park where elderly visitors were so entranced by the manatees that they saw swimming below them that they leaned over and said, aww, and then their dentures fell out. In recent years, the manatee and its protected status has been the focus of legal and political battles between environmentalists and boaters, as well as builders of docks and waterfront homes. Things have somewhat settled down. Waterfront development hasn't been stopped by the regulations. It's been stopped by the economy. I think that may be the real reason why things have kind of gone into a lull. Craig Pittman covers environmental issues as a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times. Craig Pittman's book, Manatee Insanity, The War Over Florida's Most Endangered Species, is published by the University Press of Florida. He spoke with Janie Gould. This is Florida Frontiers. Some of the unsung heroes of World War II were the women who took the places of men in vital wartime jobs that were often difficult and dangerous. Bill Dudley talks with three women who remember the war years. I was working at Sears for $16.50 a week. A friend of mine called and she says, if you want to make $44.50 a week at the shipyard, be there this week. Joanne Stokes remembers the start of her wartime work experience. So I went to Mr. Layton and I said, Mr. Layton, I believe in giving two weeks notice, but I've got a chance to go to work at the shipyard for much more money than I'm making here. And I'm sorry. He said, young lady, you'll never work for Sears Roebuck again. I said, Mr. Layton, I hope I never have to work for Sears Roebuck again. Stokes was one of a group of people encouraged to share their experiences of the war years recently at a reception for a book, Hillsborough County Goes to War written by University of South Florida historian Gary Mormino. I interviewed or collected memoirs from about 150 to 200 people, and that was an extraordinary experience. This is not just a book about the military heroes of World War II. That's very important. But this is primarily a history of how the home front war was won 
through rationing and sacrifice and privation and very hard work. One of the many stories that emerged from Mormino's research was the role played by Florida's women in ports like Tampa and Jacksonville, centers for building and maintenance of ships, large and small. During World War II, the shipyards boom, and hundreds of women flocked to the shipyards for jobs that they could never have dreamt of before the war, and now receive very handsome wages. This was a transforming experience for many of these women. These jobs were were often very dangerous. Many of the women worked as welders or in the lofts and jobs such as that. I weighed 91 pounds, so they always sent me the double bottoms where I could roll up. (laughs) Gesturing with her hands, welder Neva Todd describes a working area barely larger than herself. Double bottoms of a ship, well, it's down below, the last thing down before the bottom, and you'd have to wear that up to the sides. It wasn't about this big. You had to roll up and kind of slanted. She would come home from work, and she wore long pants, of course, but because she was so tight, the sparks from the uh, welder would burn the pants and her legs. It was too hot, and we worked generally eight and ten hours a day, seven days a week. It got old. They took us down on the yard, and they were going to tell us where we were going. So they said, well, you're going to be runners on the yard. So while we're standing there, this big crane goes over with about a 500-pound block of ice, and it falls not far from us. And we all looked at him, and we said, we said, so long, buddy. you got to find something else for us. Joanne Stokes was given a job making patterns for cutting steel plates. Let's see, they call them platelets, plywood patterns that the steel was cut by. And we would cut things on the bandsaw and we would do whatever they needed help doing. Helen Eckert Gonzalez went to the shipyards when her husband left for the Pacific. When he went up to Norfolk, they put him on a boat right away and I didn't see him for five years. She remembers her wartime job experience with mixed feelings. I wasn't that pleased of working at the shipyard, if you want to know the truth. (laughs) There was a bunch of men around there that they were on the make all the time, you know. (laughs) But they used to bring me some good spare ribs. (laughs) The war was a time of sacrifice for these women in big and small things. I think one of the worst things of all of it was how everything was so rationed. And often the small details are remembered most clearly. Sisters Bobby Joyce Ward and Barbara Lois Ward were children during the war. Talking about rubber, things that affected us was our little underclothes wouldn't stay up. You had to pin them up because there was no elastic. That's why you had to save the pins, pin them on. No rubber. Mm -hmm. My mother would save her sugar rationing coupons so that when our friends came over, she'd make iced tea for them. We always had friends at our house. They would come because... A lot of them didn't have dads, and they would come to our house, and Mom would cook for them. For Mormino, conducting the interviews, researching, and writing the book became a labor of love. It's quite clear the war was America's Iliad and Odyssey. It was the greatest transforming experience in, in modern American history. And it's one thing to read the, the archival materials and the newspapers to understand the war. It's, it's something quite different to talk to people or to read their love letters from the war. That's what was really special about this, this project to me, was the human dimension. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.